Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this month's episode on Respiratory Emergencies Part 2, we have with us again Dr. Anil Chopra and Dr. John Foote. Dr. Neil Chopra is an emergency physician at the University Health Network in Toronto and an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at the University of Toronto. He's the head and medical director of emergency medicine at the University Health Network. Dr. John Foote is an emergency physician at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto and assistant professor at the University of Toronto. He's the program director for the CCFPEM Emergency Medicine Fellowship Program at the University of Toronto. So in the first part of our respiratory emergencies episode, we talked about PE. Now we're going to talk about COPD. This is the case of a 56-year-old man with a history of COPD who presents to your ED by ambulance with worsening dyspnea, cough, and increasing purulent sputum production over the past three days. He denies chest pain or fever. On exam, his blood pressure is 133 over 86, pulse of 115, respiratory rate of 28, O2 sat of 99% on a non-rebreather and a temperature of 37.7. He appears very slim, dyspneic, and using some accessory muscles, but is able to speak in sentences. Auscultation of the chest reveals widespread expiratory wheezes, but no crackles. He has no cyanosis, JVD, or pedal edema. His COPD meds are tiotropium, spiriva, once daily, and salbutamol, which is Ventolin in Canada which he's been taking every two hours. He's also taking indapamide for hypertension and Lipitor for high cholesterol. He has no other medical conditions. His hospital records reveal that he's been admitted three times over the last two years for COPD exacerbations. His most recent admission was six weeks prior, during which he received ceftriaxone and azithromycin and was sent home on a short course of oral antibiotics. In part one of this episode, we talked a bit about why patients with COPD decompensate, that we should be on the lookout for PE, pneumonia, CHF, medication noncompliance, pneumothorax, etc. Dr. Foote, what signs on physical make you worried that your patient in front of you with COPD is really sick and may decompensate? I first look at the amount of effort he is expending, he or she is expending to breathe, Somebody who looks like they're fatiguing, using all of their accessory muscles, looks like they've just finished a sprint in front of you, I do worry about those patients because they're going all out and they can't keep that up. Obviously, people with altered mental status, either inappropriate anxiety or sedation, that would be a worrisome sign that they're some acute CO2 retention or, or that they are fatiguing. Also, when I see a diaphoresis or sweating, wise physicians often say, when, when your patient's sweating, so should you. Diaphoresis makes me worried. The way the patient sounds, I, I'm often let down by my stethoscope, but I am impressed when I hear very poor air entry. A lot of these patients, we don't know their baseline exam, but if there is very poor air entry and they're not moving much air, I do worry about those patients. You know, a lot of people with bad COPD exacerbations can have very little wheezing and they, they could be still very sick. By the same corollary, people with wheezing doesn't always mean that they have asthma or COPD. It could be a lot of things, um, PE. A CHF. So let's continue with the case here. After a dose of IV solumedrol on three rounds of beta agonists and ipetromium masks, followed by continued use of a non-rebreather, the nurse calls you to the bedside because the patient's now confused and appears to be tiring. Uh, 
His O2 sat is still 99% on the non-rebreather. Dr. Foote, th- this patient who's on a non-rebreather with an O2 sat of 99%, you know, we, traditionally, we've been taught not to give supplemental oxygen to COPDers unless the patient's very hypoxic because of the idea that giving them oxygen will lead to worsening hypercarbia and respiratory failure. When should we be giving oxygen and how much for our COPDers in the ED? Should we be using an ABG or a BBG as a guide? How can we sort out the best oxygenation for our COPDer patients? Of course, anybody who's frankly hypoxic with SATs below 88%, we need to get their, their SATs at least around 90%. We don't often know what their baseline is. And so giving them supplemental oxygen to, to achieve SATs of between 88 and 92 would be ideal for me. If you overshoot that a bit at the beginning, I'm not that worried. I often will ask for an order to titrate down by the RT or your nurses. Uh, on the other hand, it, there is a potential danger of having giving too much high-flow oxygen for too long in these patients, especially even before they arrive to the hospital with long transport times and long waits in the waiting room before coming in. There is a, a danger of CO2 retention in these patients. There was a recent RCT in the pre-hospital setting that showed that oxygen treatment titrated by paramedics to achieve arterial SATs between 88 and 92 for page, such patients who have a history of COPD reduced the risk of death from respiratory failure by 58% compared with the high flow oxygen. The number needed to harm in this uh, study was 14. If he comes in satting 99% on a non-rebreather, he probably doesn't walk around with that level of saturation and he probably doesn't need that O2 sat. And there is a real risk of CO2 retention if he stays on that level for too long. I would ask for an order usually from the RT or the nurses to try and titrate down slowly with a target of about you know, 92, 91, 90% and they may even be able to get down to nasal prongs or a, a, you know, a ventry mask with 40%. In this case, there's two possibilities for this patient's decreased level of consciousness. He could be becoming fatigued, but more likely that it's due to CO2 retention, becoming acutely hypercarbic due to the high flow oxygen, suppressing his respiratory drive. So this patient received uh, IV solumedrol. How does IV steroids compare to oral steroids for the run-of-the-mill COPD patient? Which patients do you reserve IV steroids for, and which patients do you use PO steroids for in your patients who present with COPD exacerbations? The larger studies on this on this subject would indicate that the bioavailability of IV steroids versus oral, there's almost no difference, and the time of onset of action is also very similar. There are more practical reasons for giving the IV steroids is if somebody's having trouble even speaking, it's difficult to give them an oral medication, or if they're on a continuous mask, we're going to give them the IV medication, but there are several studies that have shown that there might even be a trend, a shorter hospital stay in the oral steroid group in COPD patients that are admitted. And in terms of beta agonists, do you worry about giving beta agonists to patients with COPD who are also at high risk for ischemia? How do you navigate the tachycardia caused by beta agonists that you're giving that puts more stress on the patient's heart and may induce ischemia? I, I generally don't worry about that too much in these patients. Um, these patients who are in respiratory distress are often tachycardic, provided they're not on a nodal blocker already. So they often do have tachycardia. These patients with COPD who are a bit older or smokers, they often do have some coronary disease, but you've got to treat a more acute problem and often the beta agonists are what is needed in this case. You can often get away with slightly lower doses, like the 5 milligrams of albuterol in the nebulizer and 2.5 milligrams, half that dose are, are equivalent in outcomes and treatment. So you often don't need to give the high 
dose of 5 milligrams, but you can get by with the 2.5 milligrams of albuterol. Let's continue with the case. A patient's given continuous beta agonist by NEB, magnesium 2 grams IV, IV levofloxacin, and the RT is called to start BiPAP and to get an ABG. A portable chest x-ray shows no obvious infiltrate. When the RT arrives, he takes off the non-rebreather and suggests to hold off the BiPAP until the ABG comes back. The patient's O2 set decreases to 90% on 3 liters by nasal prongs, and he becomes more alert. You have a discussion with the RT who convinces you that an O2 set of 90% is exactly where you want to be with the patient, and depending on the ABG result, adjustments can be made from there. Dr. Chopra, the current trend in emergency medicine is to use venous blood gases as a replacement for arterial blood gases. BBGs have been shown to be as useful as ABGs in managing DKA, for example, but in COPD it's a little bit less clear. Can VBGs replace ABGs in patients with severe COPD exacerbations? I think the venous gas is completely sufficient for evaluating DKA. I think we know that very well now because we're primarily looking at acid-base status and the venous and arterial values correlate very well. However, for six COPD patients, we're also interested in the PCO2 and to a lesser extent on the PO2 don't correlate as well between venous and arterial gases. The two, in fact, can differ by 10 to 20 in magnitude. So the venous gas can be a useful screen for CO2 retention, but if you have to make critical decisions about intubating and ventilating a patient, the arterial gases are more precise. The venous gases are significantly more useful following on serial gases, because you certainly don't want to be poking this patient in the artery over and over again. So I think Venous gases for COPD is great screening, but when you have to make these hard decisions between intubating and not intubating, one set of arterial gases can be helpful. That brings up the indications for intubating or not intubating. One of the things I was taught is we should never just use numbers to decide whether to intubate or not. First, what kind of numbers do make you more worried that you might need to intubate the patient? And what else do you use to help you decide whether a patient with COPD needs intubation? I think you've hit it on the head. I don't think there are any absolute numbers. I think you're going to base it on the clinical presentation, the response to your therapy, degree of severity in terms of a pre-morbid conditions as well. And if you're looking at numbers, obviously a PCO2 that's elevating beyond 60 as an example, severe metabolic acidosis with poor respiratory compensation, I think you've got to put it all in the clinical acumen and go from there. So Dr. Chopra, let's get a little bit into more detail about the blood gases. Can you review for us how to tell if there's an acute respiratory acidosis on the blood gas as opposed to the COPD or its baseline chronic respiratory acidosis and how you use the blood gas in general to help you guide management in COPD? Well, simply put, in acute respiratory acidosis, the bicarb rises by about 1 milliequivalents per liter for every 10 millimeters of increase in PCO2. But in chronic respiratory acidosis, the bicarb typically rises 3.5 for each 10 in PCO2. The acid-based disturbance allows you to gauge the severity and acuity. The PO2 level may alert you to unanticipated hypoxemia, though it doesn't typically add much beyond a reasonable oxygen saturation. 
The key indicator is the PCO2 level, which if mildly elevated with an adequate PO2 would allow you to taper down the oxygen, as Dr. Foote has mentioned. If the PCO2 is significantly elevated, let's say above 55-60, it can help explain the patient's depressed sensorium and make decisions about the need for mechanical ventilation. Assessing the acid-base status, the PO2, the PCO2 serially allows one to change the aggressiveness of the management and thus and assess for the response to, to therapy beyond just clinical parameters. Clinically, if the respiratory drive clinically is decreasing, sometimes you can pick that up sooner than you will by serial VBGs as an example. So they're tiring. Despite all your therapy, you've thrown everything in the kitchen sink at them and their respiratory drive is going down, not up. You might as well start preparing for intubation. The problem with non-invasive ventilation is it requires a decent respiratory drive. So absolutely, if you're going to use BiPAP or CPAP, try to use it as early as possible when they actually have a decent drive. And for many patients, that's usually sufficient enough to make them better while you're throwing everything else at them. But once you get to a stage that they're tiring, the non-invasive ventilation doesn't usually work. What's the role of BiPAP and COPD exacerbations in general? What are the indications for BiPAP? Dr. Chopra just mentioned that if the patient's really fatiguing, decreased level of consciousness, that's not a place where you'd, you'd use BiPAP. How good is BiPAP and COPD, and when should we be using it? Of all the things that we use BiPAP for in the emergency department, I think the COPD exacerbations seem to be the, the condition for which there's the best evidence and all the meaningful outcomes including length of hospital stay, morbidity, mortality, and need for intubation are all improved significantly with the early use of BiPAP in patients with COPD exacerbations in the emergency room. And as Dr. Chopra mentioned, better to start earlier than, than too late while they're still alert. And you should be able to see an improvement within 30 to 60 minutes after initiation to tell whether it's helping or not. There are some medical myths and concerns about BiPAP. People say, still have still saying sometimes that pneumonia is a contraindication for using BiPAP. And I guess the theory there is that with the SARS scare that we had in North America or across the world, especially in Toronto, that the BiPAP would actually aerosolize and spread the germs everywhere. And I guess that's more of a theoretical concern than pneumonia or even pneumonia with COPD is not a, not a current contraindication to using BiPAP in these patients. The American Association of Respiratory Care recommends using the um, non-invasive ventilation when two or more of the following are present. Respiratory distress with moderate to severe dyspnea, um, an arterial pH of less than 7.35 with a PCO2 of greater than 45 millimeters and or a respiratory rate of greater than 25. In fact, there is even evidence now that for patients with hypercapnic coma that if you give these patients BiPAP, um, that a significant proportion of these patients actually recover without the need for invasive in, um, in ventilation without being intubated. Right. So that kind of goes against what we were just saying about the patient who has decreased LOC that you don't want to do BiPAP for, that you probably want to intubate. Okay. So just this is interesting. Just tell us so, about... So I guess there are some patients who um, have advanced directives saying they do not want to be intubated, but that for family members, BiPAP or CPAP would be acceptable. And um, in these patients, even when you would think that it might not work, when they're comatose with a very high CO2 or fatigue that often has a, a good chance of working, the risk is when you're using BiPAP, there's a, a significant risk of aspiration if their level of consciousness is poor and they're not protecting their airway. But that can be mitigated by certain procedures by having them, say, sit up, raising the head of the bed to reduce the likelihood of aspiration. So the bottom line there is that BiPAP is incredibly amazing for COPD. We want to use it 
while they're alert for sure in patients with significant exacerbations who aren't satting well on oxygen. And you may even want to consider it in patients with a decreased level of consciousness if they have a do not resuscitation order and intubation isn't an option. The only difficulty with that, I would say practically, is that um, when you're giving BiPAP and they emerge, if this is a do not resuscitate patient or a, a patient with advanced directives for non-aggressive measures, you might have a hard time finding a, an appropriate place for them on the ward because most ward beds do not allow patients on BiPAP. Mm. And so that can be difficult. Like it might be a temporizing method in, in the emergency department, but it, trying to get a patient who's on BiPAP to, to go to a regular medical ward um, would be difficult. Getting them to go to a step-down or an ICU bed is obviously much easier, but you may have resistance getting patients with strict advanced directives to get admitted to those beds in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good the practical point. The other corollary is that BiPAP or CPAP are limited in patients who require high-flow oxygen, so hopefully most of these patients won't, but if they're hypoxemic with CPAP, BiPAP, you can only deliver so much oxygen. So if their SATs do not come up with the amount of oxygen that can be delivered by BiPAP, CPAP, it cannot be used. Mm-hmm. Okay. We also have the patients with BiPAP who just, whatever reason, don't tolerate the mask on their face. They're confused. They have facial abnormalities that do not allow for a good fit of their face. You get these old ladies with no teeth, and it can be a difficult, mm-hmm. um, sure. difficult fit. Dr. Chopra, sometimes it seems like every patient with COPD who comes into the ED with shortness of breath will end up getting antibiotics. And I wonder whether, as an emergency medicine community, we might be over-prescribing antibiotics for our COPDers. Let's talk about the indications for antibiotics in COPDers. Which patients with COPD need antibiotics in the emergency department? So a Cochrane review of this topic published in 2006 helped guide some therapy. What we learned from this is that the appropriate use of antibiotics for COPD exacerbation decreased short-term mortality by 77%, very significant, decreased the risk of treatment failure by over 50%, and decreased putum purulence. So antibiotic treatment for COPD exacerbation, unlike asthma exacerbations, benefits from routine antibiotic use. This applies to all patients who are sick enough to require hospital admission. For those that have at least two clinical criteria for an exacerbation, including increased dyspnea, increased sputum production, and or prolence of sputum. So for those with only one symptom, a mild exacerbation which responds to standard therapy and no significant comorbidity, antibiotics can likely be avoided. There is also a bit of debate about the choice of antibiotic. It has been suggested that a newer macrolide or a doxycycline or a second-generation cephalosporin is usually sufficient, but for a severe exacerbation, that the preferred agents will actually be amoxicillin clavulanic acid or a respiratory fluoroquinolone. There's limited evidence to support this. Also, the duration of antibiotics can typically be short, in the range of about five days, according to the IDSA guidelines. Okay, so if they only have one of these cardinal symptoms and they have a mild exacerbation, then they don't need antibiotics. And they respond to therapy in the usual way, and they don't have significant pump failure, renal failure. I mean, really, this is people you're comfortable have a mild exacerbation and they respond well to your therapy. Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the antibiotics for COPD exacerbations. What about the patient in severe COPD exacerbation, like this one who is given nebulizers, given steroids, given magnesium? 
Can you just run through us your sort of list of medications you use for COPD exacerbation, how you give them, and whether there's any role for things like ketamine and heliox and, and those sort of things? So, for instance, we mentioned magnesium. I think the role of magnesium in asthma is still a bit debatable, but I think the evidence is a bit better for its help in acute asthma exacerbations, especially in pediatric patients. I think there, there may be a small role there. Um, I think the evidence for maybe magnesium in COPD exacerbations is far less clear. The small studies that are out there might indicate some possible improvement in some secondary parameters like peak expiratory flow rate and FEV1 when you combine um, IV magnesium with the beta agonists. But as far as having a meaningful change in outcomes like you know mortality, more you know morbidity, hospital length of stay, I don't think there's ever been a study that documented any meaningful change there. By the same token, I don't know if it's a hugely harmful thing to give if you're giving two grams of magnesium amexulfate over, over over 20 minutes and there are severe, is a severe case. I don't think there's a huge downside to that. As far as ketamine, heliox, um, IV, aminophilin, or none of those have been shown to be useful and potentially harmful in the CBD exacerbations. Ketamine in particular is kind of an interesting one. You know, if you are heading towards intubating a patient, it theoretically would be beneficial to use ketamine as an induction agent because it does open the airway. Is that your first choice for induction agent in patients with COPD? I just want to back up one bit. So we're talking about we're trying to avoid intubation as much as possible because these patients don't do particularly well even after intubating in terms of they have the highest risk of barotrauma. Uh, but let's say we're getting to the point where we're going to intubate, and specifically to ketamine, Two things. Once, when you intubate these people, they often drop their pressure afterwards. So I think it's very, very important to properly intubate these patients. So I start with the basics. We keep the patient upright for as long as possible because they don't tolerate supine position very well. If time allows, we volume resuscitate the patient in anticipation of the post-intubation hypotension. And I do seriously consider using a bronchodilating sedative like ketamine, which won't lower the BP, which is anticipated after the intubation anyway. Spray up the airway well, try not to manipulate too much, maybe even some IV lidocaine, though there's very little evidence for that, so that you would try to attenuate the bronchospastic response from manipulation of the airway. Use a large ETT tube, eight or bigger, to decrease airflow resistance, facilitate suctioning of uh, secretions, Expect rapid desaturation after paralysis, and you may need to back ventilate the patient if there's prolonged intubation times or early desaturation happens unexpectedly. And to minimize the risk of air trauma, ventilate with low tidal volumes, about five to seven mils per kill, and low ventilation rates, probably at least four or five per minute lower than you would in your non-COPD or type of patient. And I agree with Dr. Foote, there might not be good randomized data for ketamine. It just makes sense to me. It's easy to use. It's always predictable. It rarely causes laryngospasm, the treatment, which is just to paralyze the patient, which we were going to do anyways in the typical rapid sequence intubation. Clearly, you could also use alternative medications, including Atomidate. And for paralytic agents, you've got multiple choices, including succinylcholine and rocuronium, both of which work fine. Let's go back to the patient who you might be sending home, the COPD exacerbation. What medications would you give when you're sending a patient home? 
So we talked about the bronchodilators. When they're being discharged, I think they should have both the beta agonists and the anticholinergics to take home and, and know how to use them properly and when to use them. If they meet the criteria for an antibiotic, which a lot of them do, they often will go home with a three to five day course of antibiotics. And then the systemic oral steroids, prednisone usually, the three to seven day course is sufficient for these patients. They don't usually need to taper. And I usually give 50 milligrams per day. I don't really bother with it. If you give 60 or 40, you're dealing with a lot of little five milligram pills generally. Right. I just like, I like simple things. The um, one 50 milligram pill per day for three to five days without a taper is usually sufficient for these patients. Yeah, I think a lot of the textbooks say 60 milligrams. I don't, know, I where they, that, I don't know where they get I think that that's because maybe in some areas of the world, the single pill comes in 60 milligrams, whereas in Canada it comes in 50, 50 milligrams, correct. so we use 50. But one of the things that I, I often will use and I think is coming down the pipeline is walk tests before discharge in the emergency department with the RT. If you're lucky enough to have an RT that can walk with your patient, you know, a lot of times they'll have sats that are reasonable at rest, but as soon as they start to walk, they desat. And obviously, if they're going to be going home and taking care of themselves, a functional test like walking O2 sat test, I think it's going to become, it's being studied right now in multiple studies, multiple trials. And I think that may end up being something that we do in the future before discharging these patients to see if they're appropriate or not. I'm currently doing this right now, and I totally agree with you. The only corollary I'd add to that is, I agree, I don't think tapering steroids is required, except for maybe one or two subtypes of patients, one that are steroid-dependent. I think the traditional view is that they should be tapered over longer periods of time. And secondarily, people maybe that they're on their multiple courses in a short period of time where they actually probably have some subclinical adrenal suppression. So maybe somebody comes back for the third exacerbation in two months, is on the third or fourth course, some of the respirologists clearly suggest those people need tapering as well. One last point too is that the patient who comes in with COPD who's got a significant enough exacerbation that's already on full dose oral steroids, you don't have a lot to add and those people have a very high likelihood of needing to be admitted. Absolutely. So let's move on to another case. This case is that of a 50-year-old man with a 10-pack-year smoking history and no past medical history who comes in with a three-day history of shortness of breath on exertion, cough with blood-streaked sputum, and a low-grade fever. He denies chest pain, nasal congestion, headache, nausea, or vomiting. He has no leg pain or swelling, no thromboembolic risk factors, and no cardiac risk factors. On exam, he appears in no distress. His vitals reveal a heart rate of 110, an O2 sat of 94%, and a temp of 38.0. His chest is wheezy with no crackles and good air entry bilaterally. His JVP is 1 centimeter, and his heart sounds are normal with no murmurs. He has no calf swelling or tenderness and no pedal edema. Dr. Foote, what's your general approach to the patient who presents with hemoptysis? I would divide hemoptysis initially into the degree of hemoptysis. We have a patient like this one who has got streaked blood streak sputum, which is a lower risk hemoptysis patient. And then there are the patients with frank gross hemoptysis, grossly bright red blood, 
and clots, and they define that as less than a tablespoon of blood. And then finally, the, the scariest one of all is the people with massive hemoptysis, where they become quite symptomatic, hypoxic, and uh, tachypnic. And those are they're quite rare, but most eMERGE docs will see maybe a handful of those in their entire career. But when you do see them, they're quite worrisome because people are literally drowning in their own blood. It's not usually the blood loss, but the, the fact that blood is in a, bleeding in a bad place and causing hypoxia. So those are the way I think of them. When you talk to a consultant, you need to talk about small volume versus large volume hemoptysis or blood streak sputum. I think that's the way you need to communicate to your consultant and your radiologist. And finally, as far as causation of the hemoptysis, I think you can go through a system-based approach. You can think of cancer as, as a common and serious cause of hemoptysis, bronchogenic carcinoma, or even laryngeal carcinoma. They can all cause hemoptysis. Infectious causes like your standard pneumonia, TB, the interstitial causes... Bronchiectasis is a very common cause of hemoxis. And then finally, the vascular causes, the CHF, valvular heart disease, and PE can all cause hemoxis. One other quick thing when you're getting into hemoxis is it the one question I ask and myself is it, is it even hemoxis? A lot of people with oropharyngeal or nasal or nosebleeds can sometimes swallow blood and it'll come back up and be, be mixed in their spit. So I will often have a good look at the patient's oropharynx, their tonsils, their nose, to make sure there's not an obvious source of bleeding that's been mislabeled as true hemoptysis. And finally, GI bleeding, hematemesis can be confused sometimes with hemoptysis, although you do usually get a, quite a different history. And it's often darker, and true hemoptysis is usually fairly bright, bright red. In terms of working up the hemoptysis, the chest x-ray is the price of entry for hemoptysis. 90% of people with a malignancy causing hemoptysis will, be ident- will have a, an abnormal chest x-ray. Often the chest x-ray, and then what we believe the next step after chest x-ray would be to either talk about whether they get bronchoscopy or CT, and in which order, and whether inpatient or outpatient. And it really depends on your hospital and, and your local resources and how easy it is to arrange these things. Obviously, the, the patient with the blood streak sputum is going to be lower risk and have a lower likelihood of needing to be admitted provided everything else is. They're young with blood streak sputum. Often those patients do not require a huge workup because often it ends up being something like a bronchitis and the coronary. People with frank blood and people who are a bit older, I'm a little reluctant to send those people home and they'll often stay for further investigations, which in the eMERGE, unless they're massive hemoptysis, usually ends up being starting with a CT chest. And you mentioned the uh, scariness of the patient yes. with massive hemoptysis. Did you just run through for us the management of the patient with massive hemoptysis? Let's say you've got an alcoholic patient with a lung CA who comes crashing into your recess, coughing up huge amounts of bright red blood, and they're desatting, and they're in shock. Well, what's your sort of general approach to that well, kind of patient? These patients usually get the luxury of having these patients in the part of the acute section of your merge. So there are multiple nurses doing the A, B, Cs all simultaneously, like starting an IV on these patients, giving them high flow oxygen, suctioning. Um, I think a, an early decision has to be whether you secure the airway and intubate early on. And uh, in, in a lot of these cases, that may be the option. But it is a scary proposition trying to intubate somebody who's got um, acutely bleeding from their airway because you can't see much. It's a, it's a panic-inducing proposition, but I think that uh, you need to use all of your tricks that you have. If you have to call for anesthesia to help you, um, often you need to use a bronchoscope, even prior to, to prior to intubating, um, just to have a quick look and to suction. If you are going to intubate, I think you should pick the biggest tube you can get because often you, they may need to be suctioned through that tube or um, bronchoscope through that endotracheal tube. 
They talk about the position. One of the classical teachings is try to put the the lung that's bleeding, put that on the patient down side on that side. I think that's more theoretical. I think they think that with the bleeding side down, the lung side down, that way it won't spill over by gravity into the unaffected lung. I don't know if that's really a practical or, or whether that really actually makes a difference because it's pretty hard to study this. Some concern that can worsen hemodynamics by compressing that lung and as far as VQ mismatch and ventilation and the hemodynamics. Some people even talk about um, having the patient prone, which I, I, I have never done, and I can't imagine looking after a patient in the prone position. Um, it would be kind of difficult, but I think that's a, something people have written about. I think sometimes it can be difficult to know um, which lung is bleeding. If they come in and say, oh, yeah, I've got lung cancer on this side, then you may, you may know when you have other previous images. If you know that it's the, for instance, the left lung that's bleeding, you can actually selectively intubate the right main stem bronchus by just advancing the tube too far. And that will essentially, when you inflate the cuff, you're essentially protecting the right lung. At least the lower two-thirds of the right lung will be protected if you intubate the main stem bronchus on the right side. And that's what will happen automatically if you just advance further than you normally would. Trying to selectively intubate the left main stem bronchus, I think uh, something I've never done. They talk about being able to twist the tube around 90 degrees and, and advance it afterwards, but I, I, it's not something I've personally done. These are the kind of cases where you need to be calling for help and get as many people and experienced people as you can if you have a thoracic surgeon or an anesthetist who's used to using endobronchial blockers. You can use that. I'm, I don't have personal experience in using those. Obviously, with a, an acutely bleeding patient in this kind of situation, we talked about getting a good IV access. If they're on anticoagulants and you can reverse them, like warfarin, um, if you want to use your prothrombin complexes, your vitamin K, that's the time to use it. Using cyclocapron or tranexamic acid um, is also another option in these patients. Again, I don't know if, because these are rare occurrences that are very hard to study. I think you should throw everything at them, but these are very high-risk patients. Do you have any tricks of the trade in terms of airways that are filled with blood? What to do with those? Um, How to actually get the tube in? The bougie would be one way to do it where you don't have to actually look. So that is one option. I think using using your suction and your glide scope would be another way of, instead of getting your face in there and getting covered in blood yourself, those would probably be my two first ways of doing it. Having an endotracheal tube over a bronchoscope prior to intubating is another option, as long as your suction is working. But those would be three things I may consider. A couple things I'd add is one, sometimes you in, inadvertently notice a big scar on their chest. They may not volunteer a history of previous aortic repair, but uh, one of the big, on the differential diagnosis, of course, is uh, aorta GI fistula. And along with everything that John said, if they're pooling blood in the aorofarynx, you're in trouble. So yes, ask for the anesthetist to come. But I generally don't find the glidoscope very helpful because it always always obstructs the view. I think you get two big honkering uh, suction, one in each side of the mouth, sometimes a third one even, to suction out as best you can. Use your traditional uh, laryngoscope. And uh, yeah, I think a bougie can be helpful. The other thing I find is you, in fact, if you get the tube in in the wrong place, that's actually not too bad. You leave the tube in the esophagus and put the next one in the airway. These are desperate times. Time is of urgency. Lots of little maneuvers like that can actually get the tube in the right place. Even the anesthetist has a big problem with the bronchoscope because visually the, the camera lens gets blocked. And get your vascular surgeon, thoracic surgeon, interventional, all called at the same time, whoever you need in a hurry while you're trying to secure the airway.
Dr. Foote, it's not uncommon that at the end of our history in physical and even sometimes after chest x-ray, we're unsure if the patient has pneumonia or not. First, how good is the history in physical in predicting the diagnosis of pneumonia? I think we've all been fooled with this. The, the history in physical can let you down, despite what we've been taught. And there's no question history in physical is, is crucially important. I think we've all begrudgingly ordered a chest x-ray on somebody that we don't think needed one and we get back uh, confluent pneumonia, and we're surprised at the, the lack of auscultory findings and, and the fact that they look so well. Uh, so I, I think that the chest x-ray sometimes doesn't correlate what you, with what you see on the physical exam. On the same token, there's a sizable percentage of people with pneumonia there the x-ray doesn't even show it initially. That's probably at least 30%. So sometimes the chest x-ray, which we use almost as a gold standard for diagnosing pneumonia, can let you down. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll get a CT after a near-normal chest x-ray, and you're quite surprised to hear, to read the report, that there's extensive pneumonia on the CT. Right. So, Dr. Chopra, why is it that we, up to 30% of patients, like you mentioned, can have a normal chest x-ray, and then they're later found out to have pneumonia? So, you know, in the head-to-head trials, as you mentioned, between chest x-ray and CT scan, we know about 30% extras picked up by CT scan are default gold standard. It happens more likely in older patients. It happens uh, more likely in dehydrated patients, and it happens more likely in immunocompromised patients, whether it be transplant patients, neutropenic patients, HIV patients, because they don't mount an early inflammatory response to give you the inflammatory reaction on the chest x-ray. And sometimes it's just way too early. And I muse about what uh, Dr. Foote just said in terms of some patients look so well and you kind of, for whatever reason, you order the x-ray and you find something. My always correlative that is, well, how about if we didn't order it, they had that on their chest egg, but they got better anyways, i.e. they either had an atypical or a viral pneumonia. But now that you find something, it's like finding the subsegmental PE, you're kind of forced to treat it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we're often faced with the question of whether a patient has a viral illness or bronchitis as opposed to pneumonia and whether we're going to give those patients antibiotic or not, how we're going to treat them. And sometimes, like we just said, with the chest x-ray, it's not very sensitive or specific. What are some of the key clinical features that make pneumonia a more likely diagnosis in these patients who present with cough and uh, bronchitis or pneumonia-like picture? The bottom line is we're trying to use a constellation of symptoms on the presentation to make us more likely to diagnose the fact that the patient has a viral illness, including viral bronchitis, for which we would know uh, no need to pursue the diagnosis of pneumonia any further. So things like coryza, myalgias, diarrhea fit into the constellation of symptoms that we would typically assume to be viral prodrome. If you've got that and the patient doesn't have worrisome symptoms, like atypical persistence of your chest pain, pruritic chest pain, doesn't have significant dyspnea out of proportion to your findings, doesn't have oxygen relative oxygen desaturation. So oxygen saturation in the normal level, but for somebody ordinarily you'd expect 96, 97, now has 92, 93, and for specific kind of patients that are at more risk of having pneumonia. And again, I would use the example of the immunocompromised patient because again, they present early on without clinical signs of inflammation, but they'll have an underlying pneumonia, particularly things like febrile neutropenic patients. 
There are some studies that show that things like headache and painful cervical lymph nodes are positive predictors of pneumonia, whereas things like having rhinitis and diarrhea, like you mentioned, are negative predictors of pneumonia. I generally find the patient and I both have too much headache frequency. I don't find that particularly useful, but on the other things, I'd agree with you. <laughs> right. What do you look for on the physical exam to help you predict which patients with pneumonia are heading towards respiratory failure and who may need a definitive airway or an ICU admission? So the ones that um, so we're assuming that we're already talking about somebody who's you're, you're worried about being sick enough to be admitted. I think any any patient that you that you're that you're thinking about might be an ICU candidate. Obviously, anybody who may need you know IV pressors obviously is going to be a potential ICU candidate. And then, of course, anybody who's got significant respiratory distress with their pneumonia, um, who you know is on uh, their SATs are not great despite being on supplemental oxygen. The person with a respiratory rate of greater than 35 um, breaths per minute has been shown in some studies to be a, a good independent predictor of who's going to be who's going to have a bad outcome and who's headed towards the ICU. Finally, again, as we said with COPD, anybody who's having who looks like they're fatiguing or really um, looks like they've just finished a sprint. Um, those people are not going to be able to keep that up for very long. And uh, we give antibiotics for pneumonia, but they don't have an immediate effect. And you can probably expect that those people may end up getting into trouble if they just went to a regular ward bed. We've generally been talking about the patient with run-of-the-mill pneumonia up till now. What about those patients who might have tuberculosis pneumonia, for example, TB? In what situations would you suspect that someone might have TB pneumonia and to work them up for TB pneumonia? I think the concern about TB is usually something that happens well after the patient's been in the eMERGE. You find you get a little notice in your mailbox saying, the patient you treated so-and-so ended up having TB. So I, I think that we, we're pretty poor at deciding clinically who who's ends up being TB. There are some things that you can use on the history that may put people at higher risk for TB theoretically. People coming from shelters or, or prisons, people from countries with high prevalence of TB, patients who come in with lots of weight loss and constitutional symptoms that uh, have been going on longer than you'd expect for a, a pneumonia, IV drug users. So I don't think there's a classic picture of somebody who's got TB, and I think we usually find out later. My alarm bells start going off when somebody's got um, pneumonia with hemoptysis. I start already thinking about it, and if they're in the right risk factor group, I might actually put them in their own negative pressure room. So the, the things that might trigger you are those lists of things in yeah, terms of where the patient's coming from? Not, yeah, the constitutional symptoms like major weight loss prior to yeah. the presentation, mm -hmm. who's a recent immigrant or, or an immigrant from a, a country where there's a high prevalence of TB. A person who says, I've got a prior positive TB skin test. You know, a patient who's immunocompromised, transplant patients, patients with HIV, people who have recently been incarcerated, and the occasional person who has the more suspicious apical infiltrate or lesion on their chest x-ray may also put may, may trigger some alarms about TB. Okay. And how would that change your management in the emergency department? Let's say you have someone who had a positive TB skin test and they're from an endemic TB country and they've got an apical lesion on their x-ray and hemoptysis and you strongly suspect that they might have TB. How would you actually manage that patient differently than your run-of-the-mill pneumonia patient? There's some theoretical concern about um, fluoroquinolones that have some partial effect on the TB and make, make the yield from the initial sputum and cultures less sensitive. So there is a theoretical concern that you may not give a respiratory quinolone in somebody who you worry might have a high likelihood of having TB. 
Okay, so in terms of your choice of antibiotic for generalized pneumonia, you'd stay away from the fluoroquinolones so if they need, had risk factors. Right, if they, were, if they were needing admission for pneumonia and you're thinking about um, TB, you may give third-generation cephalosporin and amacrylide in a, in, instead of just giving the standard respiratory quinolone. These patients that you, where you're starting to think about the potential diagnosis of TB, these are the patients that you may want to get a sputum sample for AFB and ZN staining and culture. Yeah, we'll talk a little bit more about the value of cultures and sputum cultures in the, in the emergency department. Most community-acquired pneumonias in the ED seem to be treated pretty much the same in terms of antibiotic regimens with a few choices of broad-spectrum antibiotics, which we'll get to later. Do ED docs need to know how to differentiate typical versus atypical pneumonia? And should ED docs be ordering pneumococcal urinary antigen or Legionella urinary antigen in an attempt to get a specific bacterial diagnosis? Does it make a difference to their ED or their inpatient management? No, these tests really make no difference to the ED physician. The antibiotic choice is based uh, empirically on patient presentation, allergies, recent antibiotic use, and the presence or absence of comorbidity, exactly as we've been doing as, uh, as per the IDSA and the CID guidelines in Canada and the U.S. These tests are primarily used in hospitalized patients by our consultants and recommended for patients admitted to the ICU, for example, those who fail outpatient therapy, and those who have a pleural effusion or alcoholism. So in terms of typical versus atypical, we're poor at differentiating it clinically anyhow, so you have to cover for both. And in terms of things like Legionella, you might want to consider them if the patient's heading for the ICU or is an alcoholic or has a pleural effusion, but most of us will leave that up to the consultant. So let's get back to the cultures. We had mentioned doing sputum cultures in patients who you suspect for ha- having TB. Which patients with run-of-the-mill community-acquired pneumonia do you order blood cultures for? And which patients would you order sputum cultures for in the emergency department? Cultures of any kind are not recommended in outpatients in general. For inpatients, the routine use of blood cultures in all patients admitted with community-acquired pneumonia has a very low yield and rarely leads to a change in management or outcome for the patients admitted with CAP. Now, I'm not talking about hospital-acquired pneumonia, strictly CAP. False positive blood cultures may also complicate matters. Patients with severe pneumonia, those who are immunocompromised or have other significant comorbidities may benefit from having blood cultures drawn. Keep in mind, I mean, the stats are fairly self-explanatory. Only 5 to 14% of community-acquired pneumonia end up to have true positive blood culture results, and it's almost always pneumococcus, which is typically negligible on impact because we always cover for the number one cat bug uh, of significance, which is pneumococcus. And as you're mentioning in atypicals, I mean, I'll just say that there's actually no evidence in the literature that we actually even have to treat atypicals in otherwise healthy patients. But regardless of that, we tend to treat for both. So Now, having said that, as an academic, it seems fairly routine that hospitalized patients with pneumonia typically do get a set of blood cultures. In my experience, that seems to be fairly routine. For sputum, though, I think there's a whole different ballgame. There's really a poor correlation between sputum gram stain or sputum culture with positive blood culture results. Some consideration may be given, uh, as Dr. Foote mentioned, with TB. 
may be given in other special populations such as MRSA pneumonia or suspected MRSA pneumonia, multi-drug resistant TB, and so on. So while it's kind of routine that we order blood cultures, there's no really good yield on the blood cultures. We may want to consider only ordering blood cultures for those patients who are headed for the ICU, those patients with a pleural effusion, or who have comorbidities like active alcohol abuse, chronic liver disease, asplenia, things like that. What is this healthcare-associated pneumonia that we keep on hearing about, or they call it HCAP, healthcare-associated pneumonia? What do ED docs in Canada need to know about healthcare-associated pneumonia? Healthcare-associated pneumonia, as opposed, first of all, should be differentiated from hospital-acquired pneumonia. But as pneumonia that occurs in a non-hospitalized patient with extensive healthcare contact. So some of the extensive healthcare contact could include intravenous therapy, wound care, intravenous chemo in the prior 30 days. Could be a residence in a nursing home or other long-term care facility. Could be hospitalization in an acute care hospital for two or more days within the prior 90 days. So we're not talking about day procedures per se. And it could be attendance at a hospital for hemodialysis clinic within the last 30 days. And the significance of identifying this patient population is the assumption that these patients will carry more virulent, more drug-resistant types of bacteria, which may require a modification uh, of treatments such as a different choice of antibiotic to cover a more broad spectrum of bacteria, including Staph aureus and Klebsiella and Pseudomonas, when ordinarily for CAP, you wouldn't generally consider those. The therapy would need to be tailored to what the infections and resistant pattern are prevalent in that particular institution or that particular unit where the patient had the predominant contact. For example, a solitary macrolide is a bad choice for healthcare-associated pneumonia because it doesn't cover the bugs that we would also have to cover for, including staph, Klebsiella, and sometimes pseudomonas. So it depends on where in the hospital. But clearly, in that choice, you would want to cover your pneumococcus and your staph and your gram-negatives. For example, amoxicillin clavulinic acid is a much better choice, or a respiratory fluoroquinolone is a much better choice than a macrolide in that patient where if you read the IDC guidelines, which soon should be coming out, the 2012 guidelines, the older guidelines still put macrolide and with the option of doxycycline, which both of which are bad choices for healthcare-associated pneumonia. In the U.S., there was a time when the ED doc had to give antibiotics within four hours of the patient hitting the door where you got your hand slapped by your hospital administrator. How soon should we be giving antibiotics to patients who we suspect of having pneumonia? I think that this benchmark or timing, this measurement of the time to give antibiotics is not, in the standard community-acquired pneumonia, is not really evidence-based. It's mostly been a benchmark for care when you're trying to measure indicators of care quality in places like the U.S. And so and it's been tied sometimes to compensation. But uh, as far as being evidence-based and making a big difference in the outcome, I don't think there's a lot of evidence for that in the standard community-acquired pneumonia in the emergency department. That being said, once you've made a diagnosis and you're pretty sure it is, um, there's an infiltrate and it fits the criteria for pneumonia, I think the emergency physician should be the one to initiate treatment instead of waiting for a consultant to decide what antibiotics. Sometimes when you refer a patient for pneumonia, and they often can wait. By the time a decision is made and they've been seen and the consult's been done and the antibiotics have been given, it can sometimes be many hours after you've seen the patient. Mm -hmm. So I, I still do teach that once you've made the decision, choose the antibiotic and give it. 
So that that's in the case of your run-of-the-mill patient with community-acquired ammonia. Correct. So I'm assuming that in a patient who's really sick with pneumonia, obviously who's anybody septic, with septic or SIRS, you obviously don't withhold. Early antibiotics are, are one of the cornerstones of treatment um, mm-hmm. for anybody who's a sepsis criteria or um, is, is looking quite ill with pneumonia. Right. So in the, in the case of sepsis, then time is of the essence. Of yeah. In the case of community-acquired pneumonia, uh, the patient should be giving antibiotics in the emergency department, but this whole idea of a time cutoff really has no good evidence Correct. base. The guidelines for the four-hour are all based on accreditation requirements in the U.S., and they themselves found that emergency physicians were over-prescribing antibiotics for people even who didn't even have pneumonia because with overcarding, they were ordering antibiotics before they had even completely assessed the patient, before imaging was done. And in fact, the guidelines have now been changed to six hours south of the border. So it gives them a couple more hours. And because we were treating antibiotics for bronchitis, for CHF, so obviously we've learned from our own mistakes. And, and not only was there no evidence for it, we were actually doing a harmful delivery of care. For the run-of-the-mill patient with pneumonia, how do you decide what antibiotics to give them? So I guess it depends on, on your local resistance patterns and the age of the patient, allergies, and obviously the ability to pay for the medication. As we mentioned before, you can't really tell clinically with the x-ray and, and on clinical features which is a typical or atypical uh, pneumonia. So in an ideal world, you'd cover for, for both atypicals and typicals. And if they're in a vulnerable group like um, a healthcare-associated pneumonia, um, you'd want to cover for that. So if cost wasn't an issue... Respiratory quinolone will, will be a safe bet for most people. If there's a patient who is steroid dependent or has had prolonged hospitalizations or from a nursing home setting or has structural lung disease, you want to keep in mind that pseudomonas needs to be covered. For the respiratory or for the quinolones, that would usually mean Cipro in addition to whatever else they need. If patients who are at high risk for MRSA should also have specific coverage for MRSA, which whether that means Vanco or if you're giving orally, that means adding Cepra or doxycycline to their regimen. The macrolide resistance for pneumococcus is going up because it's being used like... 35%. 35%. So I, I personally don't... If I have somebody... If I have a young, a young, otherwise healthy person who's come in with a, a true infiltrate, a pretty classic story, and they look like they have pneumonia but doesn't need to be admitted, I make sure I... I, I don't usually put them home on a macrolide. I will say, I usually make sure they've got good pneumococcus coverage. And uh, samples yeah, more than respiratory quinolone. Yeah, we wrestle with this. And, you know, the, the problem is that young, healthy patients almost always do well. doesn't matter what you put them on. So this is a confounding factor. How do you study a population that almost always does well, whether you throw them on biaxin, whether you throw them on chlorothromycin, azithromycin, doxycycline, or amoxyl? If you cover pneumococcus, you're 95% of the way there in the standard community-acquired pneumonia. So if you put them on amoxicillin uh, or an alternative medication, they do fine. It just so happens they typically will do well on a, on a macrolide too. But clearly, macrolide-resistant pneumococci are, are increasing. The question, of course, the $50 million question is, does it make a clinical difference? So far, the literature shows it seems to make a difference on elderly, comorbid patients, but I'm still, I really don't think it makes a huge difference currently in our young, healthy population with an infiltrate on the chest x-ray. I think we'll see what the new guidelines show, and I think, Dr. Hellman, you're going to go over some of the existing guidelines, but I think uh, right now it doesn't really matter in the young, healthy population. Choose an antibiotic after you make a diagnosis. More importantly, don't use an antibiotic until you actually have evidence for pneumonia. So as Dr. Chopra mentioned, I wanted to review some of the antibiotic guidelines for community-acquired pneumonia. 
So in terms of antibiotic choices, your choice really depends on where you work and your local resistance patterns. So you'll need to find out what your hospital guidelines recommend specifically. But as far as general guidelines go, the guidelines from the Infectious Disease Society of America and the American Thoracic Society recommend a macrolide or doxycycline for outpatient treatment of previously healthy patients who have not used antibiotics in the last three months. They recommend a respiratory fluoroquinolone such as levofloxacin or a beta-lactam plus a macrolide for outpatient treatment of patients with comorbidities or patients who have used antibiotics in the last three months. For inpatients going to a floor, they recommend the same options that I just recommended for outpatients who have comorbidities or recent antibiotic use. What about for inpatients going to the ICU? Well, for these patients, they recommend a beta-lactam like ceftriaxone plus azithromycin or a respiratory fluoroquinolone. And if pseudomonas is a consideration, they recommend an anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam like piptaz or imipenem plus either Cipro or levofloxacin or azithromycin in combination with an aminoglycoside. If MRSA is a consideration, then you need to add vancomycin or linezolid. We'll have this summarized in the written summary, so don't worry if I just made your head spin. As a general rule, patients who have had antibiotics in the last three months should not be put on the same antibiotic. In particular, Patients who have had a macrolide, septra, or respiratory fluoroquinolone in the past three months are at least four times more likely to be infected with pneumococcus that is resistant to the same class of antibiotics. And in Canada, in some areas, there's up to a 35% resistance to macrolides, and so either a respiratory fluoroquinolone or the addition of amoxicillin or clavulin should be chosen in those areas. So ask your local infectious disease colleague. The other thing to know about macrolides, there has been some evidence that there's an increased risk of cardiovascular death with macrolides. Clarithromycin has been shown to significantly increase mortality in patients with stable coronary artery disease in a large RCT out of the BMJ in 2006. And erythromycin was shown to double the risk of sudden death and more than double the risk of sudden death in patients on calcium channel blockers in a retrospective study in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2004. This might be because their cytochrome P450 inhibitors and interact with other meds to prolong the QT interval. There was a very recent article out of the New England Journal of Medicine that retrospectively looked at patients who were put on azithromycin and found that for every azithromycin script that was prescribed, there's about a 1 in 20,000 chance of causing cardiovascular death. Now, this goes in contrary to an earlier New England Journal of Medicine article about uh, eight years ago that actually hypothesized that azithromycin would be cardioprotective and found that there was no difference in cardiac death. I think that the conclusions that you can draw from these studies are that in patients with a known prolonged QT or a patient who has known coronary artery disease or is on calcium channel blockers, try and avoid macrolides. In terms of whether to use IV or PO antibiotics in the emergency department for your patients who you've diagnosed with pneumonia, what are the factors that, may you, that would make you choose IV over PO or where PO is okay? I think we overutilize IV antibiotics because of the mindset that we've always had that we think that they are better than our oral counterparts in acutely ill patients. However, 
Many of our current oral antibiotics have excellent bioavailability so that there's no clear benefit of using IV antibiotics for the same class of drugs. Examples include our advanced macrolides, uh, such as azithromycin, include respiratory fluoroquinolones, such as levofloxacin or moxifloxacin. Except for septic patients, patients unable to tolerate oral meds, or patients with malabsorption or acute diarrheal illnesses, we should be using the oral drugs because they work just as well and are much cheaper. Dr. Chopra, many elderly patients and alcoholics with pneumonia will have aspiration pneumonia. What else besides these two patient populations would make you suspect aspiration pneumonia and how would you treat them differently? So clinical scenarios like recurrent vomiting, alcoholism, drug overdose, stroke patients with dysphagia, seizure disorders, head trauma, and, and the list can continue, would make me want to at least consider the possibility that aspiration is more likely in those patients. If aspiration is a significant clinical issue, now that's judgment, you would consider adding greater antibiotic coverage for anaerobes and gram-negative bugs. So the respiratory fluoroquinolones cover gram-positives, uh, they cover gram-negatives well, but levofloxacin, uh, for example, doesn't cover anaerobes, but moxifloxacin at least have some coverage for anaerobes. It's unclear if moxie alone will suffice, but for sick patients, you should add additional cover with metronidazole or clindamycin. The superguns like Piptazo or Imipenem or Cefepime also provide good coverage, but again, it's in the context of how ill you expect the patient is. In terms of figuring out disposition for these patients, there's been several prediction rules for predicting mortality in patients with pneumonia. There's the pneumonia severity index, which has way too many points for any emergency doctor to remember. Then came the CURB 65 rule, which is the most popular in the emergency department. Just to remind our listeners, the CURB 65 rule has five points, each worth one point. Number one is confusion. Two is uremia. That's a BUN of greater than 19. Number three is a respiratory rate of more than 30. Uh, number four is a blood pressure of less than 90 on 60. And number five is age of 65 or more. And if you have two or more points, that buys you an admission. And less than two points, supposedly you're safe to go home. There's also the modified CURB-65 rule, which leaves out the second point, uremia, and so it doesn't require any lab data, uh, which has also been found to be a good predictor. Dr. Chopra, do you find these rules helpful, and which of any would you use in your daily practice or recommend that our budding emergency doctors use in their practice? So I don't personally use these rules myself beyond clinical judgment based on clinical presentation, comorbidity, social supports, and so on. But I do know that some of my ED colleagues do use the rules to help them decide on the need for admission to hospital, which I think is very reasonable. The rules, though, can trump clinical judgment and don't account for special situations, such as our homeless patients, the ability of the patient to tolerate oral meds, the immune status of the patient. So some of those qualifiers need to be used along with whichever rule that you feel comfortable. And I must say the CURB-65 modifier rule is a very easy and practical one to use. I mean, most of it seems like common sense to me. You know, you, who's going to send home a patient who presents in shock with a blood pressure of less than 90 on 60? Sometimes if the person you're referring to is maybe not in agreement, you can sometimes trot out the CURB score, the PORT score, 
for some objective evidence to, to, to be a patient advocate. But short of that, I don't use those scores. One of the things about the CURB-65 rule is, is it doesn't include an oxygen saturation, which I find surprising. There's actually a 2011 study in clinical infectious diseases that shows an association between an O2 sat of less than 92% with major adverse events in outpatients with pneumonia. I, mean, I don't know how these outpatients end up being outpatients with an O2 sat of less than 92%, but even just using the single criteria of an O2 sat of less than 92%, is a reasonable criteria for admission alone. So we've talked a bit about differentiating those patients who can be managed as outpatients and those patients who can be admitted. What about deciding which patient should be admitted to the ICU as opposed to a general bed? You know, sometimes it's our consultants who, who are deciding this, but sometimes it's up, it's up to us to try and facilitate someone going to the intensive care unit, for example. Is there anything that can help us make those kind of decisions? I think this is based on our on the clinical situation and secondarily the response to therapy. Obviously, the hemodynamically unstable patients, patients with persistent hypoxemia, respiratory failure, severe acid-base disturbance, the ones that we can usually pick out fairly easily are sick, require critical care support. Now, there will be institutional differences of how sick a patient necessarily has to be in one place to get to a step-down unit, has to get to an ICU but in general, it's not like an O2 sat of 93% is going to be a cutoff for one institution and not another. I think it, you have to just put all the factors together and make a decision that this patient would benefit from closer observation, closer monitoring, and intensive therapy versus the other person who may be able to do well, just well enough on a step-down unit or even a general medicine floor. For those of you who like numbers to help you decide whether a patient needs to be admitted to the ICU, the current guidelines recommend ICU admission for patients with hypertension despite aggressive fluid resuscitation, hypothermia, a respiratory rate above 30, uh, PaO2, uh, FiO2 ratio of less than 250, leukopenia of less than 4, multilober consolidation, thrombocytopenia of less than 100, confusion or uremia with a BUN of greater than 20. Uh, and the presence of three or more of these criteria has recently been validated for predicting the need for intensive care. The other way of thinking about it uh, for people who like mnemonics is the smart cop mnemonic, which predicts the need for ventilator or presser support. And the smart cop is S is for uh, systolic blood pressure of less than 90, M is for multilobar pneumonia, A is for an albumin less than 3.5. R is for a respiratory rate greater than 30. T is for tachycardia of more than 125 and for confusion. O is for O2 sat of less than 90. P is for a pH of less than 7.35. And if you have five points out of any of these, that buys you an ICU admission. Before we wrap up our discussion on pneumonia, there was a great article in March of 2012 in the Canadian Medical Association Journal called Management of Community-Acquired Pneumonia in the Emergency Department. And they outlined five key important points. The first one is that community-acquired pneumonia is a life-threatening disease, and so timely administration of antibiotics is one of the important goals of therapy. They say that patients with suspected community-acquired pneumonia require urgent assessment and therapy. However, overemphasis on time to first dose of antibiotics may lead to unnecessary administration of antibiotics for non-infectious diseases. 
Because of a lack of convincing evidence, the guidelines no longer specify the four-hour window for starting antibiotics, but instead they recommend that the first dose be given in the emergency department. Second, they state that pretreatment diagnostic tests should be requested on a case-by-case basis. So blood cultures and sputum cultures should be ordered for patients who require hospital admission if they're at increased risk of unusual resistant pathogens that would require a change in empiric therapy or a duration of therapy. And these patients include those with severe community-acquired pneumonia, an immunocompromised state, alcohol abuse, structural lung disease, and the presence of a pleural effusion, as well as those who have recently traveled and those who have failed outpatient therapy. The third point they make outlines the SMART COP rule for admission to intensive care unit. The fourth one is the CURB 65 rule that we just outlined. And lastly, they state that outpatient therapy should take into account risk factors for drug-resistant streptococcus pneumoniae, so that although macrolides are the recommended first-line agent for those treated as outpatients, patients with recent macrolide exposure or who live in regions with high rates of macrolide resistance should receive alternate forms of empiric therapy. So treatment options include the addition of amoxicillin or clavulin or monotherapy with a respiratory fluoroquinolone. Next, we're going to go on to our last case. For our bonus quickie case this month, this is a 68-year-old obese patient with a history of COPD who comes into your resuscitation room complaining of shortness of breath. The patient has decreased air entry on the right side and hyperresonance is noted on the same side. His JVD and trachea position are not visible due to the patient's obesity. The patient's desatting rapidly and his blood pressure is dropping as well. A clinical diagnosis of tension pneumothorax is made and immediate needle decompression is indicated. Dr. Chopra, which approach is better for immediate needle decompression? The classic anterior approach, that is the second intercostal space midclavicular line, or the lateral approach like we use for a chest tube, that's the fifth intercostal space on the anterior or mid-axillary line? I think these patients are typically sick and they're lying on their back and you've you've kind of complicated the case by presenting a relatively obese gentleman. So the landmarks are going to be difficult irrespective of the approach you use. But I think given the fact that their supine air rises, uh, you'd expect your best yield in the highest position and the landmarks are relatively easy on the anterior side to put a quick 18-gauge angiocath needle with a little syringe with a few cc's of fluid uh, is very easily done uh, in the second intercostal space. At the same time, given the fact that most of us are very uh, versed in putting a chest tube into the position that you you state, one has to actually wonder, you're probably getting your kit ready to do a a chest tube, so it certainly uh, makes just as much sense to put it on the latter side. I think you should use the method you're most familiar with, this is a situation where you want to relieve the problem within the next two to three minutes, and you should use the approach that you're most comfortable with, the the approach that seems to be most practical with the situation you're dealing with, and in my hands, that's the second intercostal space anteriorly. 
My reading on this is that there is some evidence that you're more likely to cause damage to chest structures like the internal mammary or the subclavian vessels from doing the midclavicular line approach. Dr. Foote, what do you think? I mean, I understand that there is some evidence to say that the lateral approach might be better. So I've only had a handful of these tension pneumothorax cases that had to be decompressed quickly in my 16-year career, but I have used the lateral approach only because those are the the landmarks that I'm most familiar with from putting in chest tubes. So I have always used the lateral side. But again, as Dr. Chopra said, I think in a time of crisis like this is, you have to go with what you feel comfortable with. For me, that happens to be the lateral approach. And I use the same sort of landmarks that I use for putting in a, a normal chest tube, which is across from the nipple, between the gap and the muscles, between the pectoralis major and the lat- latissimus dorsi. They call it the triangle of safety. Is when it's typically, you can feel it on, it's just a gap. I get the patient to put their hand behind their head, and then I just put it in right there. Right, that's a triangle of safety spot in the lateral, lateral approach. In a case when there's a tension pneumothorax, I pretty much have complete collapse anyway. And usually you have fairly rapid, gratifying results, probably with either, either approach. One of the other key tips is to make sure you use a long needle, especially in these obese patients, because you could stick the needle in and all you're go- doing is going through adipose tissue. And uh, you're not even getting to the lung. Right. A lot of ki- a lot of emergents have um, kits that they have for paracentesis and thoracentesis. You can just use that same kit, the long, long angiocath on it. That'll be fine. So we've got two differing opinions. You can either go with the anterior midclavicular line, or you can go laterally in the fifth intercostal space, whatever you're most comfortable with. And just be aware that you need a nice long needle either way. Just before we wrap up this episode, I just want to put a little plug in regarding telling patients who are smokers to try and quit smoking. It sounds like a little thing and it sounds like it's obvious, but I learned quite a bit about smoking cessation therapy when I ran a smoking cessation clinic about 10 years ago. And the literature has shown over and over that if you remind patients in a positive way about quitting smoking during their time of their illness that's related to the smoking, so for example, if someone comes into the emergency department with a COPD exacerbation and they're still smoking, if you tell them in a positive way something like quitting smoking is the best thing that they can do for their health and that you highly recommend that they take the steps toward quitting smoking, if you relate this to their present illness in the emergency department, that's shown to significantly increase their chance of quitting smoking and, of course, help with their illness in the long run. So some of the treatment options are nicotine replacement therapy. There's a patch and a gum. A combination of both is better than either alone. There's medications that you can use in combination with nicotine replacement therapy, as well as counseling therapy. And their primary care provider is in an opportune position to provide these things for the patient. When they do a combination of all these things together, the quitting rates are even higher. So please, next time you see a patient with a smoking-related illness in the emergency department, it takes only about five seconds to tell them that quitting smoking is the best thing that they can do for their health and that their current illness is related to their smoking. And finally, this month's quote of the month is from Henry Ford. Failure is the opportunity to begin again more intelligently. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's episode. 
Next month, we're going to have Dr. Eric Latofsky, Dr. Michael Feldman, and Dr. Anna Jarvis talking about syncope in both pediatric patients and adult patients. Totally psyched for that one. Hope you all enjoy the beginning of your summer. And until next time, take it easy.